his initial thoughts about climate change were that all he knew was that if Al Gore was for it, then he was against it. And I think that same dynamic has played out on a grander scale among average voters. It's Maria from Cooler Earth, and this is Now What, a special season of our podcast where I'll be talking to experts from all walks of life who are doing the work and being very intentional about how they find new and engaging ways to communicate the challenges we currently face and just as importantly, the opportunities, ways forward and reasons for hope. This week on the podcast, I'm speaking with John Kocher. He is a research assistant professor at George Mason University's Center for Climate Change Communication. He also works on the Climate Change in the American Mind Project, a series of national public opinion surveys carried out in partnership with the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication. It aims to investigate and track public attitudes toward climate change and support for climate policies in the United States. John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah, yeah. Um, thanks for having me. Um, so do you want to start telling me a little bit about yourself and what drove you to this line of work? Sure. Um, so I'm a research professor here at the Center for Climate Change Communication at George Mason University, and I conduct, very broadly speaking, um, research on public opinion about climate change and how best to increase public engagement around the issue. Um, now, I actually got into this line of work somewhat by accident. Um, I went through my entire undergraduate career majoring in zoology. I always cared about the environment, um, wow. but I had no idea that there was such a thing as a field of climate change communication or even science communication. Right. And it wasn't until I was working on my master's degree that uh, I just happened, I was working on a master's in environmental science. and. I just happened to have some friends who were getting their master's degrees in communication, and they said, hey, you know, there's a professor in our department who studies climate change communication. I think you might have some things in common and something to talk about. So uh, that, that uh, professor was Matt Nisbet, who's now at Northeastern University, and I just, you know, emailed him one day and met with him and ended up taking a course with him and doing my master's thesis on climate change communication research. And um, after that, I got a job working at the National Academy of Sciences in Washington, DC, uh, working on not exclusively climate change, but a variety of things related to energy and climate. And while I was there, I witnessed you know, some of the leading climate scientists in the country really struggling with uh, this challenge of how to really best engage people on this issue. So that definitely was a, a motivator for me to go back and then get my PhD in climate change communication research here at George Mason. And after I finished my doctorate, I essentially just never left and continued to do research um, in a lot of different uh, avenues uh, here at the center. So um, it's really been a, a wonderful experience, I have to say. What do you think are some of your goals now? So um, I would say, you know, beyond just my original focus, looking at how best to serve the scientific community and inform their engagement efforts, um, my research really takes a broader look at how to serve the broader climate change communication community, whether it's scientists or environmental advocates or, or other um, potential practitioners. And that means identifying trends in public opinion on climate change, um, surveying Americans about emerging topics to inform policy discussions, 
as well as identifying promising message strategies to increase engagement with the issue, but also uh, trying to do research on outreach tactics that can then deepen engagement among people who are already concerned about climate change. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's something that gets overlooked sometimes? As you said, you had never really come across climate change communication as a thing, as a field of study. And I feel that's the case for a lot of people, even those that work in the field and very deep in climate change. Is there a lack of thought that goes into, well, how do we even begin to talk about this and how to best do that? Uh, it's hard to say, um, since I now have the curse of knowledge uh, <laughs> about the field. Um, but I would say that my intuition is that it has gotten better over time. Mm -hmm. I'd say uh, 10 years ago, there were probably a lot more uh, intuitive theories about or anecdotal uh, sort of theories about what works best in climate change communication. And I think really over the last several years, you've seen a greater turn towards um, really integrating the practice of climate change communication with um, empirical social science research that can help inform those efforts. And one of those you know, indicators of that is the National Academy of Sciences has recently formed uh, a climate change communications initiative to really sort of coordinate the efforts of that institution to help serve the interests of the broader climate change communication community. Right. It's definitely very important work. And I think it can be critical in, in the way we have this discussion, not just among ourselves, but with the broader public as well. Um, and since you've been at this for a while, you've published a ton of papers. What do you think is the most surprising or significant finding you've had through this research? Well, so one of the findings that um, continues to strike me ever since the first time that I, I learned about it is at the Center for Climate Change Communication, in collaboration with our partners at the Yale Project for Climate Change Communication, uh, we did an audience segmentation of Americans a number of years ago called the Six Americas of, of Global Warming. And really what it shows is that, um, you know, it, it, it dispels the assumption that there are really just two kinds of people when it comes to climate change, that, you know, you've got people who believe in it and those who don't believe in it, but that really there are a variety of different audiences out there um, with varying levels of concern and knowledge about the issue. And what we find in that research is that even among Americans who are the most alarmed about climate change, many of those individuals are doing a fairly good job in terms of altering their consumer behavior to reduce their personal contributions to climate change. But when it comes to actually engaging in political advocacy and contacting their elected officials to express their concern about climate change, only about somewhere between 25 and 30% of those individuals who are most concerned about climate change actually do so. And so what that really suggests is that we've got a problem even amongst people who are the most alarmed about climate change. Yeah, um, yeah. And uh, you know, there's, there was a recent study that shows that uh, congressional staff actually systematically underestimate their constituents' support for climate-friendly policies. Um, and that this is true, even whether, regardless of whether uh, it's Republican or Democratic congressional staff. And so really what that suggests is that um, what is needed is more research to figure out how to effectively mobilize those individuals who are already concerned about climate change to express that concern to their elected officials. 
And, and what do you see as that next step? Do you think it's a lack of deeper information? Do you think it's a disillusionment about the potential action that, that even contacting representatives might have? So it's a variety of things. Um, some of the research that's been conducted thus far suggests that um, helping people feel more confident that their concern will actually be incorporated and taken into consideration by decision makers mm -hmm. will make them more likely to engage in advocacy. So something that social scientists oftentimes refer to as efficacy beliefs. So increasing the sense that people's actions make a difference. Right. Um, and then also changing people's perceptions of their normative environment. So helping people show people that other people who share their views are also taking these kinds of political actions can help spur further action um, among people who are concerned about climate change. And in terms of the actual messaging, I think the, the problem with climate communicating climate change is that it's such a broad and massive issue, right? Even the causes and the consequences are so far reaching um, and very technical in some cases. How do you think we can get past that challenge of communicating very complex scientific findings to people where they will not only understand it, but feel it on a personal level to inspire that kind of action? Yeah, um, this is a really important point and uh, something that you know researchers have been really thinking a lot about um, for a long time. And you're right, uh, many Americans view climate change as a distant problem, both in time and space, that mm -hmm. it's a problem for future generations and that it's the worst effects are really going to happen in faraway places, like many people think of a small island nations in the mm -hmm. Pacific Ocean and things like that. And so one of the strategies that's emerged that really appears to have some support for it as a, an effective strategy is to focus people less on climate change as an environmental issue, as it's been framed historically, and instead focus on the human health impacts of climate change. And so our research has shown that um, when asked, just top of mind, many Americans can't name a single way in which climate change harms human health, nor can they identify which populations are most likely to be vulnerable to the health impacts of climate change. Right. However, when you actually inform them about the different ways that climate change can harm human health, uh, it actually increases engagement with the issue, particularly among political moderates and conservatives. So that in itself is promising, but a, a different variation on this theme is perhaps for whatever reason, uh, an organization is concerned that even just talking about climate change is too politically sensitive right. for some audiences. Um, we found that talking instead about the conventional, the health impacts from conventional air pollution from burning fossil fuels and how that harms people's health can also be a productive way to, to reach audiences across the, uh, the political spectrum. And in particular, there's a growing amount of evidence in the medical literature about how air pollution from fossil fuels causes neurological harm, particularly to young children um, and babies who have yet to be born. And what we found in some of our most recent research is that talking about those neurological impacts actually is uh, more concerning to people than talking about some of the more well-established, well-known air impacts from air pollution, such as uh, effects on respiratory illness and, and things of that nature.
Right. Wow, that's fascinating. And I guess exactly that puts a human element that's very tangible, right? If you live nearby a coal plant or a facility that's burning fossil fuels, that becomes very real to you in a sense that, you know, global warming effects 20 years from now don't. I wanted to also talk to you about the point that you touched, and it's how political this issue has become, because there's no real reason it has to be, right? And this is a uniquely, not uniquely, but predominantly an American thing, um, where an issue such as climate change has become so politicized to the point where precisely even bringing it up seems as if you're taking a political stance. Why do you think this is the case, and how can we shift away from that kind of perception? Well, I think part of it is for a long time, uh, there's been a very well-coordinated campaign to send a signal to people that this is a partisan issue and that if you even just believe that it's happening, and even more so if you support action to address it in some substantive way, that that means that necessarily you're not supposed to hold that position if you're a member of the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, So... One of my uh, colleagues, uh, former Congressman Bob Inglis, uh, oftentimes talks about how when he was in Congress, he init- his initial thoughts about climate change were that all he knew was that if Al Gore was for it, then he was against it. And I think that same dynamic has played out on a grander scale among average voters uh, within each party. Right. But despite the fact that it has been historically such a politically polarized issue, One of the things that's been obscured by that is that despite differences in opinion on uh, the issue of climate change, there's actually broad bipartisan support for a number of climate-friendly policies. And so just for example, in one of our most recent surveys that we conducted, this is a nationally representative survey of uh, Americans, um, we find that majorities of uh, registered voters, including Democrats, independents, and Republicans, support funding more research into renewable energy sources, such as solar and wind. There's broad bipartisan support for providing tax rebates to people who purchase energy-efficient vehicles and solar panels. And there's broad-based bipartisan support, even among Republicans, for regulating carbon dioxide as a pollutant. And then perhaps most surprisingly is that there's uh, even majority support for uh, the recent Green New Deal proposal among Republicans, Democrats, and independents alike. And so it's really important to stress that although there may be differences of opinion when it comes to climate change, um, when it comes to climate policy, there are a number of of potential solutions out there uh, where there is broad bipartisan support. On that note, I think the, the traditional news or media has, specifically around the Green New Deal, it's really jarring to see the way it's talked about in certain news outlets or, or you know, in the news, particularly more conservative-leaning ones, right? Because when something like this makes national headlines, it feels like a way to use it to kind of scare people into, listen, this is what Democrats want to come, take your things, take your meat even. And this has happened continuously when it comes to climate change and climate policy proposals. Do you think there has been a role that the media has played in perpetuating this divide? Yeah, so I guess I'll just start off by saying I think there are actually a lot of journalists out there who do a great job in covering this issue. But yeah, one one concern that has been very well studied and and discussed 
is the idea that um, many journalists rely blindly upon the the norm of balance. Mm -hmm. So providing two view, two opposing views to the issue um, as a way to come come off as less biased, as so as though you're not taking a position on on the issue. Um, and unfortunately, this often results in a sort of debate between two talking heads on cable television about the existence of climate change or whether it represents a serious problem. And research has shown that that kind of even-sided, balanced debate can create a skewed perception in many uh, citizens' minds about the true nature of a scientific agreement uh, regarding the reality and the seriousness of climate change. So I think one way, really, that the news media could continue to, to improve its coverage is I get that, you know, those kinds of debates are good for attracting audience members and getting views. But instead of having, you know, one side debate that we should take action on climate change and one side debate that we shouldn't take action, what would be really interesting to see is let's have two Republicans debate with each other. Maybe there's one Republican who's in favor of taking action and actually articulates some proposals on how to address climate change and one that says, hey, let's not take action. Or better yet, let's get one Republican who supports taking action on climate change to debate a Democrat who supports action taking climate change. And really, the discussion is less about whether we should or shouldn't take action, more about what is the best way to address this. And I think that's the kind of coverage that could really stimulate a healthier debate in this country. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think another thing that I have faced personally, and I can only imagine what people who cover this on a bigger scale, there's also a balance to be struck between conveying and actually saying the true impacts that science has told us that we should expect from climate change versus striking a tone that is not demoralizing and makes people believe that, well, there's absolutely nothing that we can do, right? So in your opinion, or based on your research, how do you think it's best to strike that balance while conveying the seriousness of a problem, not making it so bleak as to make people lose hope that there's still something we can do about it? Yeah, that's that's an excellent point. Um, because some of some of my colleagues, uh, particularly Lauren Feldman and Saul Hart, have done some research looking at news coverage of climate change, and there's a long-standing finding within the um, risk communication literature that in order to actually motivate people to take protective action against risks such as climate change or uh, more personal health risks, that you can't simply just scare them into action. You can't just talk about the threat that. Uh, a particular hazard represents, but that you also have to make people feel like their actions can actually make a difference in reducing that risk. And so, again, you have to provide that efficacy information to people to make them feel like they can do something about it. And what Lauren and Saul find in their content analyses of news coverage on climate change is that, um, yes, indeed, uh, news coverage does sometimes tend to talk about threats, the threat of climate change, and it does sometimes tend to talk about solutions on how to address climate change, but rarely are those two topics talked about it together in a single story, and instead they're talked about in isolation. And the research really suggests that in order to actually motivate that protective behavior, people need to hear about both elements together. And so 
I think you know that's you're absolutely right that talking about the scope of the challenge as well as solutions that match the the scope of the challenge is really necessary. And I think that's part of um, this is purely speculation, but that's I think that's some of why people have been so excited about the Green New Deal is they feel as though finally here's a policy proposal or here's a set of principles that could lead to a policy proposal that actually matches the scale of the challenge, that it's not just simply scaring people about climate change and then telling them to change their light bulbs as a way to to address it, um, but that it's actually going to require this monumental transition. There's there's another piece of the puzzle that we haven't touched upon, and it's the role of the scientific community, right? These are the people who are out there who are doing the research, dedicating your, their lives to understanding in various different capacities how is greenhouse gases and carbon dioxide going to affect the, the planet and our own health. And you've done research into how the credibility of scientists is not actually compromised when they speak up and advocate for action, which I found fascinating. Can you talk a bit about that project and what inspired it and what your findings were? Yeah, this was a project that uh, I had had a long-standing interest in this, partly um, due to my uh, prior employment at the National Academy of Sciences, because there was always a long-standing discussion there, um, and even just among other scientists uh, informally, where I heard them you know, concerned about where is the right place for me to get involved in this debate? And will I compromise my credibility by speaking out on this issue, um, calling for action in general, or advocating for certain policies in particular? And so we, I've looked at the literature. I had looked at the literature and found that um, there was no shortage of commentaries and opinions that had been uh, advanced about this topic over the years. But very little empirical evidence had informed the debate about the relationship between scientific advocacy and their uh, perceptions of their credibility. Um, so we decided to do some research on this. And broadly, as you mentioned, what we found is that compared to just providing people with a simple statement that climate change is happening, when a scientist talks about the need for action or the risks of climate change and how, uh, what they represent, as well as even when they advocate for certain solutions to climate change, rarely did we find that it actually had a negative impact on people's perceptions of scientists' credibility. And rather, the deciding factor was, what was the specific position that the scientist was advocating for? So in one study, we found that the only time in which a scientist uh, actually harmed their credibility by speaking out on climate change was when they were actually advocating for building more nuclear power plants as a solution to climate change. That probably has less to do with uh, a belief that the science scientist was doing something inappropriate by engaging in advocacy. And it probably had more to do with the fact that many Americans are just really uncomfortable with nuclear power as a source of electricity, and that that was what was affecting the scientist's credibility. So again, it, it really is, appears to be, at least thus far, based on the, the current evidence, that um, it's not so much that average Americans have any problem, per se, with scientists engaging in advocacy, but it really depends upon what specific position is being advanced by that scientist. Right. 
And ultimately, we look at that line of research not as uh, prescriptive to say, oh, all scientists should engage in advocacy or they should not. There's no one-size-fits-all approach to this issue. And ultimately, it's a very highly personal decision for any individual scientist. And so we look at it rather as a way to help them make more informed decisions about which approach is right for them. Do you think, though, that there is a certain responsibility that rests upon the scientific community as bearers of knowledge and that kind of credibility to go beyond just saying, hey, this is what we found, this is going to happen, and actually, especially right now, today, to do more and advocate for solutions? Yeah, I think that's perfectly a, a fair argument to make. Um, and that's that's one that's been discussed quite a bit in the literature is that actually not speaking up about the issue and the seriousness and the need for action um, is it is in itself a form of advocacy as well. And that there is no no such thing as a neutral position when it comes to engaging in advocacy on climate change, um, because not speaking up about it means that uh, there's less potentially less of a likelihood that society will take the actions necessary to reduce the mm -hmm. risks. Another project that you work on, as you mentioned before, is on National Public Opinion Service, which is in partnership with Yale. And I'm curious to know how you've seen public opinion change and shift even in the past, you know, five to 10 years um, and where where we are now in terms of not the media um, or how they discuss it, but in terms of actually what people are, are thinking and believing. Yeah, so this is um, a really exciting finding that um, we just did some analyses literally just a few weeks ago um, where we, we looked at a number of key beliefs about climate change and how they've changed over the past five years. And we've actually seen a double-digit increase in the proportion of Americans that think that climate change is happening, that scientists agree that human-caused climate change is happening, importance that people personally attach to the issue of climate change, their worry about climate change, the belief that it's going to harm Americans as well as them personally. And we also see a double digit increase in the number of people in the proportion of people uh, who say they've personally experienced the effects of climate change. The natural disasters that have been happening and their just their scale and impact definitely have contributed, I would assume, to that change in perception. Do you think there's anything else, any other factors that are contributing to people understanding this as more as an issue? Yeah, so um, this is a bit of speculation here. But one of the things that might, might be going on there is uh, some of the forces that may have been exerting sort of a downward pressure on a lot of those various beliefs and attitudes at the beginning of the 2010s have since uh, faded into relative obscurity in the memories of, of many Americans. And so I'm thinking about public attention to the battle over cap and trade legislation around 2009-2010, the Climate Gate scandal, where some emails were hacked and released uh, from a research center in the UK. Uh, that, too, was around 2010. And then there was also uh, the Solyndra scandal, the startup com tech company that went bankrupt and had received uh, some funds from the Obama stimulus package at the beginning of his first term. Uh, that, too, was, for a little while, quite the talking point among conservative media. 
And all three of those thing of those topics uh, have since uh, faded in memory. And so part of what we might be seeing is uh, a reduction in that downward pressure from those those uh, mm -hmm. topics. What about engaging people that are not necessarily in in that conversation yet? Is there space for us to reach out to straight up climate deniers? And should there be still a responsibility to educate people on the very fact that climate change is happening? I've been hearing through these interviews, some people who say, absolutely, right, we need to keep moving that needle. And then there's people who believe, well, there's there's really no point in trying to change minds that are simply not going to change. Well, I would say it's a question of prioritization. Mm -hmm. I certainly would never say don't engage those folks, especially if there is a good faith uh, interest mm -hmm. among them to learn about climate change and you know learn about the science and let them make their own decisions about uh, how to form their opinion based upon that information. But yes, in terms of uh, broader communication strategy, in terms of trying to secure societal action to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, I'd say really, you know, there hasn't been enough attention on, like I said it earlier, um, figuring out what are the most effective ways to mobilize people who already care right. about climate change in meaningful ways. Um, I think there's been probably more attention towards those at the tail ends of the spectrum the mm -hmm. other end of the spectrum than uh, necessarily their needs. What makes you most hopeful about the future of climate action? So one of the things that really gives me a lot of hope is that the, the climate change communication community is much more organized than it was 10 years ago. And part of what I mean by that is even just within my little sandbox of doing research in academia, I've noticed a shift among more academics who study climate change communication, becoming interested in doing practically relevant research that actually helps inform real world communication efforts, as opposed to just getting some more publications and some journals that nobody's ever going to read. And so uh, one of the organizations that's really helped facilitate this change is efforts like the organization called Research for Impact, run by my friend Adam Seth Levine at Cornell, Uh, which actually helps broker partnerships between organizations who are out there doing public engagement on climate change so that they can partner with academics to do field experiments and figure out what are the different strategies that work and what doesn't work and really ground those efforts in empirical evidence as opposed to uh, just going off of intuition or anecdotal evidence. John, thank you so much for all the work that you do. I hope to keep seeing your wonderful research and following your work. And thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening. If you found this conversation valuable, please share it with friends and colleagues. And don't forget to give us a rating wherever you're listening. See you next week.